I'm Nevin, and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, I'm going to share some new recipes, talk to people about food and cooking, make some videos, and go on some adventures. You can find it all at nevintaylorcooks.com. This week, I'm talking about Peruvian food, coffee, and cacao with Campesino Mateo. All right, all right. This week is a long one. I think it's going to be over an hour. So we're going to get right into it. Starting up first, Tyler Akabane is back from mushroomsformyfriends.com with an update. So Tyler is back for another installment of What's in the Woods. Hey, I am approaching the idea of foraging and the seasons with knowing what you're looking for in terms of stage of growth. So my answer to your question is roots and shoots. Roots and shoots are in the woods. What kind of roots and shoots? Well, actually, does, we... it ha- does it have to be in the woods? Can it be outside the woods? It, I mean, I think that's just the name. Okay. <laughs> Can it, does that's it have just, to be in the woods? It doesn't have to be in the woods. I think that's just what we got. Okay. And what's what's not in the woods, that's a root or shoot. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Roots and shoots outside the woods because the woods are going to be cold. They hold on to the cold longer. Uh, Right now, I'm like, I'm outside the woods. I'm in the fields. In the fields. Well, yeah, yeah, that counts. That's the same. Yeah, yeah. What's in the woods is like a, you know, a metaphor for... What's growing wild out Feel in the, the fields. Yeah. Um, feels in the fields. I'm fielding the fields. Right. Feels in the fields. Okay. <laughs> All right, yeah. Anyway, okay. what roots and shoots are you looking for? All right. right. What, what's going on out there? So I'm thinking bitter herbs. What's a bitter herb? So like dandelions, a bitter herb. I guess it's a bitter green. And then I think of ground ivy and tansy and yarrow. But the yarrow's not really that flavorful right now. But the tansy and the ground ivy in particular, really like funky floral bitter herbs and then roots garlic mustard i'm a big proponent of everybody eating the garlic mustard because it's invasive it's invasive you can't beat them eat them just go out and rip them up just dig them up and throw them away but you use a root yeah garlic roots, mustard root root you pull it up by the root and you can you gotta wash it and then you can grind it up into a paste have like a mustard or like a horseradish paste or you can cook it and eat it they're nice and tender now while it's still cold out Later in the season, they'll start to get woodier and harder, but right now they're nice. Like a natural wasabi, or like a local yeah. wasabi. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Totally. Uh, nettles are coming up. Just so that ones. would be a shoot, little nettle shoots. Yeah. But yeah. you don't eat the stem, just the leaf, right? I eat the stem when I cook them. Really? Yeah. I, I usually puree them and I work it into like a malfati or something. But yeah, I usually I blanch it and I, I use the stem. A malfati like the pasta? Yeah. Listen to you. Look at that. Wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say who I'm, I'm ripping off. Uh, what's her name? Connie Green. It's in her book. She does like a nettle malfati. It's got like breadcrumbs and eggs and nettles and Connie Green. Hit me up. DM me. Sign yeah. into the DM. We could be cool. <laughs> we could be friends. Yeah, totally. Um, I love it. But the stinging nettles in a pasta yeah. while they're young and tender, super easy. Stinging nettles are also, if you find a patch of them. They can, you can get a lot of them. Abundant. Yep. And you don't have to worry about any sort of like over harvesting, whatever. Well, you do need to make sure you wear gloves. Got to wear gloves. It's preferred to pick them before they go into flower, which I didn't know for a while, but I guess it's because of um, 
oxalic acid or something or yeah. something that's like helps you get kidney stones. Yeah. What about the dead nettle? Yes. Yeah, that's another one. That one's out really early too. That you one's out. You can find out. that with yeah. the frost. Um, it tastes like corn husk to me. Huh. Like like green, fresh corn husk. Yeah. So I think it's cool. You, you get these like little chunks of flowers at the top. So batter them and fry them and you get like little nuggets of, of, of green yeah. plant. Uh, burdock. Burdock root. Yep. Which, which now should still be tender. Yeah. Just chop it up, fry it. Gobo, Japanese cuisine. I love I love burdock. Daylily, bottoms, little tubers. You dig the whole thing up. Yep. Shake it off. Rinse Cook off. it just like a potato. Yeah, like a little potato or a little um, juice lamarna choke or something. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it's weird to say because it's a flower, mm-hmm. but they're like a floral potato, like mm-hmm. a starchy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a sun choke or water chestnut. Those shoots too, once they get a little bit bigger... Mm. Those are really good to eat. Just mm. the shoot itself. Like, yes. leave it, just cut it. Lily Don't dig whites. the root up. Lily whites, right? That's the Lily whites, yeah. And then the flower is good, too. Once the flower comes. Lily? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Day lily. Tiny lily or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So you can go to mushroomsformyfriends.com. If you want to find out more about the roots and shoots, Tyler's got some pictures up on his website, I think. I'm going to link it all below so you can get over there super easy um, and check out some pictures of the stuff we were talking about. Tyler uh, is doing some walks with dinners, like an educational walk in the woods. He's going to go foraging with some people. Uh, he just released, and after after he leads you out in the woods and shares his knowledge with you, he sits down um, and has dinner, and it's all um, with a chef at a restaurant sort of thing. I'm I'm doing one of the dinners, or maybe two of the dinners. I don't know how many of the dinners I'm doing. I'm doing at least one of the dinners. I'm cooking the dinner, um, and he's going to take you out foraging. Uh, so go check his website. The first one is at Tasting Counter, which sold out super quick. Um, so if you want to buy tickets, if you're interested in all that sort of stuff, go to mushroomsformyfriends.com. I can cook for you. Mushroom Tyler, Tyler Akabane, the mushroom prince can take you out, will will take you out in the woods and uh, share some of his knowledge with you and then I'll cook you dinner and we can hang and it'll be super cool. Anyway, check it out, mushroomsformyfriends.com. This week's guest on Cooking Up a Podcast is Matthew Block, uh, also known as... Campesino Matteo. He is a coffee and cacao importer. Um, he goes down and spends a bunch of time down in Peru every year working with farmers, trying to um, increase the quality of the products that they're getting, and he buys directly from them, imports it all up here. Some really cool, uh, super high quality coffee and cacao that he, um, you know, sells and makes into chocolate. Um, so you can find his coffee if you want to get a cup of it and drink it. It's at um, Broadsheet Coffee in Cambridge. I think they have two different kinds of the coffee that he imports. I think you can just buy like a cup of it, like brewed. Um, but also uh, Karma Coffee, 
sells his beans. So I'm gonna put a link on here. So if you're interested in buying some of the coffee beans that we talk about um, in this whole uh, conversation, which is just super awesome. He has so much knowledge and so much enthusiasm for Peru and also coffee and cacao. Um, yeah, so Karma Coffee, if you wanna buy some beans, I'll link it below. You can buy it online. They probably ship it right to you or something like that. I'm not really sure, but, um, and he's making chocolate with the cacao, this very specific type of cacao that we talk about at um, Somerville Chocolates. I tried to look at their website. I don't think they have like an online store up and going, but you can go to their store um, in Somerville and they should have some of his, you know, single origin, very specific variety of cacao. He goes, helps harvest, imports up here, makes it into chocolate. Life is beautiful. Let's talk to Matteo Campesino. Yeah, so I'm Matteo, Campesino Matteo. I was born Matthew Block. I still go as Matthew or Mateo from the Boston area. And I've been living in Peru on and off for the past few years, traveling around and working on organic coffee and cacao farms. I started a company importing directly from these farmers I've been working with the past few years, uh, mostly coffee and cacao because those were kind of the crops that were already making it to the States. They were just making it in a circuitous route that didn't necessarily value the farmer's hard work or incentivize high quality production. So my idea was I'm gonna work with these farmers directly. Their products are already making it to the States but I want to help them improve the quality and connect them directly to the people in the states that care about it. Did you get into the farming specifically, like being interested in the farming stuff, and then uh, what led you to Peru? After college, worked for a year, kind of doing website development. And I started to get into like, where's my food coming from? So I went to the local co-op, you know, in Delaware. I went to school in Delaware. I went to the local co-op and there were apples. There were apples that were from Oregon and Washington that were organic. And then there were local apples that were minimally sprayed and not organic, but some sort of integral pest management. So I started thinking a lot about these things and where's my food coming from? How much do I really know about that? So then I took off uh, kind of with a backpack first time I'd ever really done this. I grew up in the suburbs, so I didn't really have a connection to farming. And I flew out to Oregon and Washington to work on organic farms out there. And I did woofing, W-W-O-O-F, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And that was kind of my entryway into this other world that we all subsist on. Like we all need the farmers in order to survive and to eat. So that just completely opened my mind to everything that's going on with the plants, uh, herbalism, with growing food, with fruit, uh, you know, orchards, cultivation, everything. And then from that, from working on these farms out in Oregon and Washington, came back to the Boston area and I was like, what's next? How do I know what's next for me in my life? I didn't necessarily get a pad of paper out and write down the pro and the con and was like, okay, well, I could continue to do that. I could go here. Well, if I want to do this, I can do this, this. And that's kind of the this 
intellectual brain trying to figure out what Mateo wants to do in his life. It was more just listening to my heart and what do I, f- where do I feel like I should go? And I didn't really know anything about Peru. It just kind of called my name. I was just needed to go to Peru and I didn't really know why. I kind of had in my mind this vague idea of kind of this ancient traditional culture and maybe less technology. I don't need my cell phone. I don't need my computer. Just kind of get out there and learn something ancient. Yeah, I think part of it was I had this feeling that they were amazing with agriculture. They had traditional methods or there was something there that I needed to learn. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that Peru had something for me or I maybe I had something for Peru as well. It was kind of this mutual relationship. And so, yeah, I got down to Peru with a backpack six months, which did some woofing, then visited some eco-aldea, like an eco-village type places where people are living in harmony. And, yeah, worked on tons of different organic farms and saw these really distinct climate and zones within Peru. Yeah, so if we were to look at a map of Peru, it's sort of somewhat shaped like California, let's say that. Interestingly enough, Peru is over three times the size of California, so it's pretty massive country. And on the left, you know, all the way on the west, touching the Pacific coast, that's all desert. That's where Lima is, the capital, and in Peru, that's known as Costa, the coast. And then as you go east, basically you're hitting the Andean mountains. So that's the Andes, Sierra. And so you have basically this long range of mountains all throughout Peru, north, south, pretty much with peaks over 5,000, 6,000 meters. Big stuff. And then as you go further east, then you start to go to the eastern slopes of the Andes and little by little you go down into the Amazon jungle basin. So in this one country, you have an incredible amount of biodiversity incredible amount of different cultures and you have native tribes in the jungle you have people speaking quechua in the mountains you have more european influence on the coast and just an insane amount of agriculture going on everywhere so that you went there and saw all that stuff and you were under the peruvian spell you're like i need to start doing i need to do more things interact with more people and that led you to coffee and cacao because it's like the biggest things yeah not initially honestly so i started on the coast they don't have coffee or cacao on the coast they have different fruits and i was doing bio construction and basically building natural housing and working with other fruits then i went to the mountains where they have a lot of potatoes and quinoa and corn and some livestock and different fruits and then from there i finally went to this region which is my favorite region, they call Ceja de Selva, which is the eyebrow of the jungle. So we're not talking like low Amazon flat, just dense jungle. And we're not talking high Andean mountains. It's kind of the sweet spot in between where it looks beautiful and mountainous, but it's lush and it's green. And that's where the coffee and the cacao grows. The cacao can also grow deep into the jungle. But I love that place because it's a little bit more crisp, the weather. You know, sometimes it almost feels like a fall day in New England if you're up higher in the mountains. And they actually started growing some some pine trees, so you get almost that pine scent as well. And you don't have to contend with these tropical diseases like the malaria, the dengue, the yellow fever, the chikungunya, like all these crazy things that you could potentially run into like in the deep jungle. So 
that so after I was on the coast, then in the mountains, then I went to the Ceja de Selva, the eyebrow of the jungle, and I was like, wow, this place is amazing. The people are incredible. There's just so much agriculture. There's avocados and yuca and taro root and mangoes and citrus fruits and bananas and coffee and cacao. So I was thinking about, you know, all throughout the time there, I did have a degree in marketing and economics. So I was always thinking like, so where is this stuff going that they're growing? How is it getting there? Who's buying it? What's happening? But it was more at the beginning, just to learn as much as I could about what's going on agriculturally. Cool. That sounds like a pretty fun, I mean, that's an adventure. That's like a real. It was an adventure, man. I mean, so I'm on the backs of motorcycles going through these crazy valleys and crossing rivers on these little like pull carts on these cables and real deal real deal yeah. real deal stuff <laughs> yeah yeah no electricity no internet obviously yeah. no cell service just living before we get into like coffee and cacao and stuff a little deeper what when you go to peru mm-hmm. so what what do you what's the first food that you want to eat when you get there like what are you into what's the first like this is what I want here. Yeah. Or or when you get to Cusco or when you get to, oh, how do you say it? The eyebrow? The eyebrow of the jungle, yeah. <laughs> how do you say or it? Or just the eyebrow. Ceja. Ceja is yeah, eyebrow. Yeah. Ceja de... Ceja de selva. Selva. Selva is jungle. So, or when you get to the Ceja de selva, yeah. what's the, like, Ooh. first, like, I can't wait to have... <laughs> well, yeah, it's... Great question. Uh, yeah, it depends where I'm going first. So if I'm going, let's just say I'm going straight to the Ceja de Selva, going straight to the farms. My number one thing that I'm looking forward to is the what they call paltaicape. Paltaicape is a Quechua, which is the indigenous language that most of the people speak. Palta is, is avocado. Cape, so this is a pre-Columbian language. Right. So paltaicape, the cape is to smash. And so it's av- smashed avocado. It's basically just guacamole. Yeah. But they have incredible avocados there that are in- just so buttery and so flavorful. And they cut that up and they basically, you know, they put onions and maybe some tomatoes and whatever in there. And the classic breakfast in some of these areas is paltecape with boiled yuca or taro root and a cup of coffee. And it sounds such a, it doesn't sound like a combination that would be that appealing, but for some reason it's, it's something that once you try it, you can't, you can't not think about it and you can't not have it every day. So I'll even go to the market, I'll go to the market in Kiabamba, this main city, um, sort of city in, in this region and, and go to the market in the morning, you pay two soles, which is like 60 cents and you get this huge plate of smashed avocado with the yuca and a, and a cup of coffee and it's just like... Something about the, the combination of everything you get, like the oily, fatty avocado that kind of gives you slow burning energy throughout the day. And then the yuca is just your base starch yeah. brain food. And then you have the coffee, which kind of helps digest it all. It's yeah. just an interesting combination. So, the- so that's when I get to the eyebrow, the jungle. I'm trying to think. Yeah. If I, there's also another dish uh, in, the, in the mountains they call... Man, it's been a while. I haven't had the dish. I can't remember what it's called. Um, oh, it's called. Uh, well, one of the one of the names they use is estofado de loro, which is like a stuffed parrot. 
but it's not it doesn't have any parrot in it they just call it that because it looks green and it looks like it could be you know the the feathers of the parrot um uh haucha haucha they call it and so that's kind of this classic like super dense green vegetable dish with corn and and abbas which are these like flat beans that they have there and that's a really good dish that they serve usually with uchukuta uchukuta is this um peanut-based spicy sauce that they usually prepare doing this fresh stone ground technique where they put peanuts are native to Peru. There's a bunch of cool, interesting varieties of peanuts in Peru. And they'll put, they'll mash that up with some green uh, wakatai, which is another herb they use down there and salt and maybe some peppers and different stuff like that. So yeah, that combination is really good. Yeah. They sound very, you know, it's like what you want to eat to like stay alive for a really long time or like have energy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean, or have energy for a really long time. Like that's what you want to eat. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, to be honest, that's what I go for. Other people are probably like, that doesn't sound too delicious. I'd rather yeah. have like the, the chicharron, which is like the fried right. pigs yeah, and yeah. maybe the cuy, which is the guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. they want like these wild boar kind of animals that they yeah. hunt in the jungle. But no, I love you know, it. that's those, just not me. Those sound great. That sounds that sounds good to me. I'm into it. Um, Eva, I just went down to Eva. I was telling you about, but she's growing yeah. wakate. She is. Oh, yeah. wow. Very yeah, cool. She has some like big, she has like a whole row and her kind of like, wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's super cool that it's growing yeah. up here. So how it all happened was after having gone to Peru two times, I was, I had lived in Peru for a year. I went down for six months, came back, worked on a farm in the States, um, farming apples for a little while, then went back to Peru for another six months. And now my head is starting to turn, you know, the marketing brain is like, okay, you know, how can I make this a living for myself? And how can I help more than just one farmer that I'm working on his one farm this one day or this one week or this one month? How can I make my impact greater? Well, maybe I can work with more than one farmer. Maybe I can work with five farmers or 10 farmers or maybe someday 20, 50, 100 farmers and help them directly reach whoever's consuming their products. Because right now it's going through a lot of hands. Their coffee, their cacao is going through a lot of hands before it ends up in our cup or maybe someone's cup in China or Brazil or Russia. So how can I do that? I came back to the States and I said, I want to directly import these products. I think they're really good because it seems like it's a high altitude, they're super lush fields. It seems like they've got these interesting varietals of coffee and cacao, but I don't really know anything about what the market wants. So the marketing was like, hmm, I've got to work with coffee and with cacao and understand a little bit more what these people in Boston in the States are looking for. Mm. Both of these products are fermented. So learned more and more about If I were to import this stuff, if I were to buy them directly from the farmers, who's going to buy them from me and what are they going to value? So was in the States, learned a lot about the coffee and the cacao. What are these people looking to buy? And then went back to Peru after midway through a Kickstarter crowdfunding project that I did. For starting this company? For starting my company. Okay, wow. And... 
So I'm starting my company. I'm doing the Kickstarter. I fly to Peru. I'm midway through the Kickstarter. I don't know if I'm going to raise it. Yeah. And the thing with Kickstarter, you need to hit your goal. Or you don't get anything. Or you don't get anything. Yeah. So I'm worried, but I'm in Peru and I'm ready to start doing what I'm trying to make happen, which is bring these products from the middle of nowhere in these remote valleys in Peru to Boston and to New York, which seemed like an insurmountable task at the time. Yeah, I can only, it seemed, that seems, it's not like you're putting stuff in your backpack and coming back. No, (laughs) I am putting stuff in my backpack too, but that's more samples for the people. I'm trying to put stuff on a boat and get it to Lima in the first place. So yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, man. So uh, this first year that I was in Peru, nine months, Kickstarter funded, you know, a month or so, I mean, a few weeks after I had landed in Peru, Kickstarter funded. So I'm like, okay, I can make this, I, I, I can make it happen. Yeah, which is fantastic. And I appreciate everyone who supported me because without them, without their interest and, and belief in what I was doing, it wouldn't have been possible. Not for just for me, but like for all these farmers I'm working with, it wouldn't have been possible for them to... Like how many smiles I saw on people's faces that were directly due to people that trusted in me and gave me money is just incredible because, yeah, I I really am thankful to everyone who supported. But yeah, yeah, I'm in Peru nine months and I'm learning everything along the way. And, and, you know, there were times where I'm like at the bottom of the hill and I've got, I've got three or four big sacks over a hundred pounds of coffee and cacao and like I gotta make it up the hill and carrying this we're talking steep hills a mile and a half two miles up the hill and I'm like what am I doing how am I doing this and and is this worth it but it's and it's and it's beautiful incredible lush greenery so I'm happy how'd you get them up uh, sheer, sheer brute uh, on will your, on, on your, my back on your back not all of them at the same time but you went up and I then... went up and I went down I dropped them off at this uh, vicino this neighbor's house up there but like that kind of experience I have had multiple times <laughs> yeah. and I will continue to have but it's you're looking up the mountain and it's like impossible. What did I get myself how, into? Yeah. What did I get myself into? And not only that, but how do I get this up there? Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not I'm not built like the Peruvians. The Peruvians in this region, they tend to be a little bit smaller, stockier, like strong as an ox. And they've been lifting and climbing the mountains their entire life. You know, I was playing soccer and baseball. Yeah. You know, I didn't have the skills. but But you learn from them. They teach you. And, you know, we're humans. We can all do similar things, you know. So um, maybe CrossFit. that's... CrossFit, yeah, CrossFit's exactly. like, yeah. This is the official CrossFit this, of Peru. I feel like everyone who does CrossFit is waiting for something like that to happen in their life <laughs> so that they can actually use the, like, tire-flipping strength that they've developed. It's like all they're doing is waiting for somebody to be like, there's a 100-pound bag of coffee at the bottom of this mountain. I need you to go grab it and run it up here. Exactly, yeah. Come visit me in Peru. Anyone who's, like, interested in CrossFit, I will, I will, I will work, work your ass off. <laughs> I love it. It's cool. Yeah, people don't realize it's just so ubiquitous. You know, you can get coffee anywhere. Yeah. It seems so simple. Right. Yet the amount of steps that it needs to take to get into our mug or our cup yeah. or our cold brew or whatever we're drinking. Same thing with the chocolate bar. The amount of steps that literally this thing came from the ground. It came from a tree, both of them. And 
the minerals were in the soil at one point that we're drinking. The minerals were literally in the soil being uptaken by roots and using the sunlight to create sugars in the plants. And now it's in our cup and it's like, it's mind blowing to think about the journey that these minerals and these plants and these fruits and these seeds had to go on. Well, you want to talk about coffee first? Let's talk about the the journey that like most people I don't think are aware of one, the growing and processing steps that go into the coffee and then maybe more specifically like what needs to happen in this kind of like mm-hmm. with the farm specifically that you're working with, which are very rustic and yeah, very uh, human scale. Everything's hand handed. So yeah, I guess just go through the, um, the growing processing of all of that. Yeah. So they plant coffee seeds and in a couple two three years it might start to give its first fruit depends on the altitude depends on the varietal depends on how much light it's getting depends on the soil conditions but yeah you could get a crop in two two and a half years very small but once you get to four five and really five to ten is kind of the prime of the coffee plant usually you know it could still produce up you know 40 50 years it's just going to be reduced the crop yield so doesn't matter how old the plant is we have the plant and it's starting to produce fruit yeah so it, it can be it can grow quite tall it can also there's other other varietals that tend to be a lot shorter and and stockier so there's a bunch of different varietals out there some look more like trees or kind of wiry bushes and some are more stocky so we're producing a fruit and it tends to be a, a range of hues color-wise. Could be bright yellow, a little deeper yellow, orangish, bright red, darker red, mahogany red, almost purplish dark colors. So we want to harvest ripe fruit. That's kind of a big thing in the coffee world is if you're, think about it, if you're going to go to a blueberry bush, no, and you collecting blueberries. I don't know how many people out there collect blueberries, but you can think of it. If you pick a nice ripe blueberry and you put it in your mouth, it's going to taste delicious and it's going to be sweet. If you then go and collect some blueberries that are kind of whitish that haven't fully matured and they haven't fully ripened, you put it in your mouth, it's going to be a bit astringent and not as tasty, not as sweet. So the idea is we want to pick ripe fruit with coffee. And going through handpicking all of the coffee. So we're handpicking specifically ripe fruit and collecting it. So we might have two people on the farm for the day. We might have 20 people on the farm for the day. Everyone's collecting fruit. At the end of the day, or sort of throughout the day, we're collecting into larger sacks. And these larger sacks get filled with coffee cherries, fruits. And then the traditional method in Peru is to use washed process. One of the ways you can do is just collect the fruit and just dry them in the sun. Simple, dry, natural processed coffee that develops certain flavors, certain characteristics. With that method, you need a a space, a landscape that's usually drier. So it promotes drying because the drying can take a little bit longer since there's a lot of sweet mucilage and pulp around the coffee itself. And you need more space because it's going to occupy a little bit more space. But in Peru, they mostly use a washed processed coffee. They use they make washed processed coffee. So what they do is they collect all the fruit and then they put it in what's called a wet mill. The wet mill basically strips off the skin and just leaves the 
bean surrounded by some of the fruit. The seed surrounded by some of the fruit. Right. And the fruit is sweet. It's got, we, we measure it in terms of bricks, the kind of uh, refractometer, the total dissolved solids. Mm-hmm. And so it's sweet. If you, if you bite into it or kind of suck on it, it's, has, it's really sweet and it has a quite delicious flavor, the fruit like itself. Like coffee or not like coffee? Not at all like coffee. What's it, like, what's it taste like? Ish. Kind of a sugary... Like a plum? Some of them, actually, they all have distinct flavors. So I've had some geisha coffee, which is kind of this special varietal coffee that tastes like apricot. Okay. It tastes like a fresh, juicy apricot. So basically, we're separating out the skin from the seed surrounded by some of the mucilage. And so since the mucilage is, since the f- fruit itself is very sugary, and we're in the tropics, so there's lots of yeasts and bacteria in the air that's on the skin of the fruit that's all around sugars tend to ferment they tend to break down and there's a process by which the mucilage breaks down into simpler compounds and then is able to be washed away and kind of scraped off the bean itself so easier to clean easier to to get all of the stuff off and you're just left with the bean yeah exactly you know some processes now honey processed coffee there's no honey involved you're depulping it so you're removing the outer skin and then you have the seed surrounded by some mucilage fruit and you're just drying that in the sun that's kind of this hybrid process between the two but mostly in peru we're depulping and then we're allowing the coffee to ferment naturally and then we're using water to wash the coffee and then letting that water drain and then we're left with parchment coffee which is basically a seed surrounded by this final layer of protection and then we're drying that yeah and the drying situation is like on a big table depends there's people drying it like patio drying which is a big cement slab on the on the ground they're pouring the beans on they're raking them with with rakes and moving them somewhat frequently you could do that same thing and put it on a big tarp or kind of the ideal method for quality which is what we're looking for to preserve all these amazing aromas and flavors that are intrinsic to the coffee themselves we want to put it on a raised bed ideally that has airflow so air can go under and up through the coffee and basically the coffee will be able to dry in in an atmosphere that promotes minimal mold growth so we don't obviously want any mold and we want airflow and we want protection from the elements you know we are in the tropics so it has a tendency to rain if you have a huge 50 by 50 foot patio drying patio where you have coffee all over the place and it starts to rain a little bit your coffee's going to start to rehumidify and well if that does happen would it be ruined or would the quality just be so badly affected that it's just going to be like commodity coffee at that point or whatever commodity coffee so it could still be totally someone's going to drink it but yeah yeah not garbage someone's going to drink it and really if you're a farmer and you don't care if, if, if whoever's buying it from you doesn't care about the quality on in the cup, the taste of it and the aromas, then it doesn't matter. They're going to buy it no matter what. But if someone like Mateo is coming around, it's like, oh, I want delicious coffee or someone else that's like, oh, we want, you know, 87 point coffee, then you don't want to let that coffee 
touch any water once right. it started to dry. You want to try and very closely manage each step in the process because it has huge effects on the end result. So it seems like very simple things are happening, but the more closely that you can watch each of those very small procedures, the higher the quality is at the end. Without a doubt. And so this is very simplistic because, you know, we could talk for an entire day. We could write long books about how to harvest, how to plant the trees, even how to prune the trees, how to harvest it, how to ferment it exactly perfectly right and doing different tests, which fermentation works for different varietals, how to wash the coffee in the most effective manner, how to dry it the best way that we can dry it to maintain and preserve these flavors and aromas, and then how to store the coffee before it gets sent to the dry mill, which is the next step. And, you know, everything throughout the process is complex. Okay, but so basically, you get it dried out. How long does it stay out for on these like racks or cement floors? Or So that's a big thing with quality. Before, the farmer just wants to do it as efficiently, quickly as possible. They don't want to spend their time. They want to dry it in three, four, five days. Quickly, easily sell it. They want the money as quickly as possible. But, you know, Mateo comes around, other people come around, they're like, we want good quality coffee that is still going to taste good after eight, nine, ten months, maybe a year. So if we dry it slower and we kind of slow it down and and work the coffee more evenly, and maybe we dry it over two weeks or maybe three weeks even, quality is going to improve. So anywhere between three, four days and a month. Then you take all of that once it's dried. Put it on my back. Put it on- <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens from the farm? From the farm, either the farmer's collecting their coffee and they're putting it in their own storage warehouse space. You know, don't think of a warehouse. Think of like a shed. <laughs> um, or it's then being collected by someone. You know, let's say it's Mateo. So the farmer comes down the mountain. Maybe I meet the farmer. We both carry some sacks down the mountain or we put them on his motorcycle or his mule or whatever. However, we're getting the coffee from the farm to some sort of centralized location. Yeah. So let's say it's this little town. I've got my little warehouse there with a little scale. The farmer comes down with me carrying the coffee bring it to the warehouse, weigh it out, write down how much the coffee weighs, check the physical quality of it. As you know, is there a lot of insects? Are there sticks in the coffee? You know, ideally it's just clean, perfect coffee. Um, But sometimes these machines or the drying, somehow the coffee can sometimes get damaged. So if I buy a hundred pounds of coffee and it only ends up once I dry milled and sorted it all only ends up to be 70 pounds of coffee. That's not a great conversion ratio. If it turns out to be eight from a hundred pounds to 80 pounds, that's great. So kind of checking the physical quality and then putting it in storage, writing the farmer's name on it, the date of harvest, everything. So now we're in a centralized location and after the harvest has come and passed, then we're bringing all of that coffee to another centralized location, usually in, usually in a truck. Um, and then there is when we're going to basically process that coffee and make it exportable, make it, put it in bag and make it perfect for the roaster who's going to roast it. Yeah. Simple enough. We want to remove that final outer layer, the parchment, this kind of papery layer to arrive at the green unroasted coffee bean, kind of a bluish gray color. 
And then we want to sort it for size. We don't want really small beans with really large beans because when the roaster is going to roast them, they're not going to roast evenly. Mm -hmm. One of them is going to under roast. One of them is going to over roast. And we want uniformity. So we're separating it for size, larger beans with larger beans, smaller beans with smaller beans, and then potentially passing them through a gravimetric meter, which removes lighter beans. We want denser, more concentrated beans that have more complex sugars and more density to them. And then packaging that, oh, usually hand sorting it, somehow sorting it, and then putting it in a sack, putting it on a truck, bringing it to Lima, which from Kiabamba is a 36-hour long drive wow. in a truck. That is a long drive. And I've been, I've been there in the truck with the coffee going through the mountains. It's 3 in the morning. The driver's tired. I'm not driving the truck. Definitely not. Driver's <laughs> tired. Pull off the side of the road. I hop in the back, go on top of the coffee. I sleep for a couple hours until they knock on the back and say, Mateo, vamos! <laughs> And then I get back in the truck and we're off again. <laughs> but I want people to know the coffee, the high quality coffee is exported using a Grain Pro sack. These are plastic sacks that go inside the jute burlap sack that we all think of coffee. These plastic sacks have a hermetic seal. So I'm putting all the coffee in this and using zip ties to close it off. Doesn't allow moisture to come in, come out. Doesn't allow aromas to come in, come out. And then because, you know, we're bringing this stuff from the tropics to the port. Dirt roads. Dirt roads. But also then we're putting it on a boat and the boat is going in the Pacific through the Panama Canal, it's going through the Caribbean. There could be really hot days. You don't know what the container's next to. Another container, you know, lots of stuff can happen. So we wanna make sure that we're maintaining the quality. The farmers put in a lot of effort. They put in a lot of work harvesting just the ripe cherries because Mateo's like, oh, you gotta harvest the delicious ripe cherries. Yeah. And then, you know, because we all want that. We, people in the States, that's what we want. So then, you know, all the farmers have put in all of these hard working steps. Yeah, you take care of it. You make sure it's I gotta make. For. I gotta yeah. make sure it arrives and yeah. honor the farmer's work. Totally. Yeah. Um, so then we get to Lima, put it on a container, put it in, take it off the truck, put it in a container. And then the container goes on a ship, comes up here, and then you have the green beans that you then sell to roasters. And you don't roast anything yourself. You just sell to people who who take those green beans, roast them, and then yeah, exactly. sell in bulk or in a coffee shop or whatever. Yeah. My, my job is to connect small coffee roaster in the States with small coffee grower in Peru. Make that connection because... The coffee farmer, they're never going to be able to make it to Cambridge. They, most of them haven't even ever made it to Lima, the capital city of their country. And most of the coffee roasters, you know, in Cambridge or Brooklyn, they're going to have a hard time connecting directly with these coffee farmers. Even if they make it to Peru once, how are you going to get to Pablo's farm? It's going to be impossible. And, and even, you know, there's so many farmers, it's hard to make that connection. So my job is to connect these two worlds as directly 
and transparently as possible. So I want to be transparent in everything I do. That's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish. Let's talk about cacao a little bit. I don't know as much about the I can't ask you as many specific questions, I guess, about the cacao, but um, yeah, if you want to just kind of dig in a little bit or quick brief again, like we did with the coffee of the like process of what cacao and then how it becomes to be chocolate. I guess I just want to take one step back with cacao. Cacao, also a tropical fruit tree that is native to the Amazon jungle basin. It's native to areas of Southern Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela, Brazil. That's kind of... This Orinoco River and Amazon River Basin is where cacao is quote-unquote native to. There's also native cacao to Central America, but it was somehow brought there by humans, animals. As far as we know, cacao is native to this area of the Amazon. Interestingly enough, most of the cacao in the world is now grown in the Ivory Coast in Ghana and West Africa. So we're here in Peru, very small in terms of global production of cacao but there's all these native varietals out there there's all these native interesting cacaos that exist in peru throughout latin america and they tend to be more flavorful more aromatic and they have a higher cocoa butter content they have interesting textures and flavors so i'm i'm coming to peru this first time and i the first time i went down there and i see all these cacao trees i've never seen cacao before but it's a pod-shaped fruit that kind of looks like a football. There's pods that can be really huge, and there's pods that can be really small, just like maybe even the size of your fist. And so it varies quite a bit depending on the varietal, depending on where it's being farmed. And I'm in Peru, and there's this cacao variety in the south called chuncho. Chuncho is a Quechua word that means native. So it's native to this area, chuncho. You can't really find it in anywhere else in the world. And this varietal is the one that I'm really interested in, the one I'm working with now. So have this tropical fruit. The trees can grow quite tall. They can grow 40 feet, 50 feet even. Most of the new varietals, kind of these hybridized cacao varietals that are used for production and maybe disease resistance they're usually stunted in growth and they grow quite small it's easier to harvest but the cacao that we have in peru in this specific region chuncho you know they're also growing hybrids some of them but the chuncho that we're interested in they can grow quite tall and we need to use a long pole with a blade on the end to basically pop these pods off of the fruit tree that's all up in the canopy the pods of the fruit can grow right off the main trunk, which is weird because you have this long, this big tree. You know, think of a apple tree. You would never see right on the main tallo, as they say in Spanish, like the main trunk, trunk of the tree. Exactly, you would never see a pod just grow, or sorry, an apple just growing right off of that. But that's what happens with the cacao, and it's weird. So we're collecting cacao throughout the day. At the end of the day, or at, after a couple days of harvest. We open up the pods, and in the pods is this crazy gelatin-like fruit sweet pulp that's surrounding a bunch of cacao beans, which are really just seeds of the cacao tree. We scoop them out, and we collect all of it, and then we ferment it. Again, natural sugars, really sweet. If you bite into the, if you suck on the fruit of it, 
of this cacao. It tastes like a natural starburst. It is incredibly sweet and floral and juicy. The only thing I think in the world that might even be better than the chocolate itself is the cacao fruit. And no one gets to experience that in the States, which is pretty wild. So we're fermenting this giant mass of cacao beans that are surrounding, surrounded in the pulp, the fruit itself. Usually that's done for high quality in wooden boxes. And we're gonna ferment for a couple days and then we're gonna rotate and kind of move the cacao around so that it ferments evenly. Because if we have a fermenting mass of whatever we have, whatever's in the center is more, is gonna, there's gonna be more heat generated, it's gonna ferment quicker. So all the stuff on the sides, we're mixing in and we're trying to develop even fermentation process. Once it's fermented, for four or five days, each day we're gonna be taking a look and basically cutting the cacao beans. We're gonna take a, a representative sample of 10 cacao beans, let's say, and we're gonna cut them and determine if we need to ferment more or if that's enough of a fermentation. Once we determine, okay, it's fermented perfectly, we're now gonna take all of that mass of cacao of which the pulp has heated up to maybe 45 to 50 degrees Celsius Again, I'm working with yeah. the metric all in good, Celsius. That's probably what, like a hundred and... 1,820 yeah, 20, around there. Yeah. So 120 degrees Fahrenheit, let's say. So it's heat, it heats up. It's pretty hot. Like you stick your arm down in there and it's hot because all these microbes are consuming all the sugars and producing heat and energy. So once it's fermented properly, and so since it, heat, sorry, since it heats up, the pulp liquefies and it kind of drains out to the bottom. Yeah. Then we take this mass of fermented cacao in the box and we put it out to dry. And so again, we can use, we can use these patio dryers on top of a tarp or we can use raised beds in the greenhouse. Basically, we wanna bring the humidity down to ideally for cacao, anywhere between six to 8% humidity. Once it's dry, then again, we're gonna bring it to a central location to have it packed, ideally also in the grain pro bags, although most cacao is not exported as such, even the specialty stuff, but ideally we want it in the grain pro bags to maintain the quality. Obviously, if it's a little bit too humid, you put it in the grain pro bags and it arrives in the States, you could open it up and it's just white because of the mold. So we gotta be careful that the moisture is, it, the cacao is dry. But if it's dry enough, we put in the grain pro bags, no problem, and we're gonna protect and preserve those flavors and aromas even more. We can also sort it, but that usually happens throughout the drying process that the farmer can kind of pick through and take out whatever debris is in there or damaged beans. We collect it and then we bring it to the States. And here's where it gets interesting because the coffee there's definitely an interpretation. The roaster roasts the coffee and then they're brewing it. With the chocolate, there's more steps once it gets to the States. Yeah, more processing. More, more processing. More interpretation, more ways it can go. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Which is why it's also interesting in this kind of alchemistic thing because we have a bag, let's say, of 132 pounds of beans, maybe 152 pounds of beans, depending on the size of the bag. And they look pretty much like almonds. And so how do we get that into this 
chocolate bar or liquid chocolate. That's where the whole alchemistic process starts of basically removing the outer skin. You can kind of think of it like an almond. It's almost easier to think of it like an almond. The almond, you have an outer skin. The cacao, the skin is a little bit tougher and a little bit more shell-like. Not super shell-like, but we want to remove that just like an almond and just get to that inner white part of the almond, let's say. With the cacao, it's, it's kind of a brownish black, sometimes more purplish depending on the fermentation. So removing the outer skin, we can either do that through roasting, which is almost all cacao is roasted and then, win- and then cracked and winnowed, which is this process, roasting, heating it up, and then letting it cool and then cracking that outer shell off and winnowing it, so removing it using usually suction because the shells weigh less than the nib. And then we're separating the shell from the nib. The nibs now are becoming more common. You might see them in your granola. You might see them on your acai bowls. You might see them in a snack pack, in a trail mix, or maybe on your chocolate bar themselves. Just the nib, yeah. So we have shell and nib. Separate them and the nib is what we're looking to turn into chocolate. So what happens is you need to grind the nib So we usually put this in a huge melanger or concher Which has a stone base and two stone wheels The base rotates and the wheels rotate as the nibs go in we're reducing the particle size We start with something that's crunchy and and a large particle, and we want to get something that's extremely smooth and has these, we we measure size, particle size by microns. So we want something that's like 10 to 15 microns, because at that point, our palate can't really distinguish between this particle size, and it just sort of melts right in our mouth. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking to do. As we're grinding it, the cacao bean is made up, the, sorry, the nib is made up of around 50% fat content, cocoa butter. For some cacaos, specifically the chuncho, the cocoa butter content is a bit higher, maybe like 53 to 58%, whereas other varietals, the cocoa, nib, uh, the cocoa butter content is lower. So as we're grinding it, we're allowing, we're heating it up as well because friction creates heat. So we're heating it up and the cocoa butter, interestingly enough, it melts right around skin temperature, which is why you might see it in your cosmetics, you might see it in pharmaceutical products as well, and it has a lot of value. So as you're grinding, it's heating up and that's what's sort of liquefying. So as as it's grinding continuously and we wanna grind it anywhere between a few hours to 72 hours, it's becoming this liquid molten chocolate mass that's beautiful. And so in commercial chocolate, what they usually do is use a cocoa, uh, sorry, a hydraulic press to remove the cocoa butter from the cocoa solids. And so that butter is this white butter, you know, this white solidified paste that is used then in these other industries. And because it has such a value in the pharmaceutical and cosmetic industry, It's usually extracted and then sold. And then the big chocolate makers will use kind of a cheap substitute that might be soy derived, it might be corn derived, it might have another fat to re-emulsify in. Exactly. Wow. But the fat is what we want. We want an integral cacao chocolate product. So as we're grinding it, then we can put in different sweeteners or maybe other flavors that we want. And then we have a 
molten mass, liquid mass of chocolate. And that's after we go through another step of tempering it, which is basically crystallizing these specific type five cacao crystals. Partly is helps for shelf stability. So if you bring it out into the sun, it's not gonna just melt right away. If you don't temper it, that's what'll happen. It also creates this nice shine on the chocolate. And it also, when you break it, ah, you get this nice, beautiful snap to it. And it also melts in your mouth slower. So if you ever had a chocolate bar, most everyone has had this experience. They have some sort of chocolate, somehow it got hot and then sometimes it cooled down and you get this kind of whitish haze layer on it that's called blooming it's not dangerous at all that's the cocoa butter if you can scrape a little bit off put it on your skin that's the cocoa butter right there or you can just eat it right away but the idea is that we want the cocoa butter to crystallize in a specific way by cooling it and heating it up and then we mold it and then we have chocolate so I know at this point you're probably, your mouth is watering. Maybe you want to try some chocolate. <laughs> let's do it. All right, let's try this. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's in this chocolate. Okay, but. so this has stuff that's not cacao and cocoa butter in it. So I just want to have the people hear what it yeah, sounds this like. Will, a good this will be snap. good. It'll... Oh. That's what we want. That, that's a good tempered chocolate. Awesome. So do you, can you get a sense I don't know what it is. I mean, it tastes really, It tastes like really, to me, high quality chocolate. And I think I can taste, it has like a specific like acidity mm-hmm. and like tartness kind of to it. Definitely. Um, but in terms of the other flavor that's in there, I, I don't know. I mean, it tastes really good yeah. without a doubt. But I can't put my finger on what... There's something that's like a little floral. Mm-hmm. This cacao, the chuncho, one, it tends to be have a high cocoa butter content, so it sort of melts mm-hmm. nicely. Also, it's got a little bit of this fruity characteristic that sometimes edges on floral. Depending on the farm, actually, and the processing techniques, it's interesting. This specific bean can be kind of nuttier, hazelnuts and almonds, or it can be super fruity, like dark red fruits and floral. And so we don't know 100% how much of that depends on the subvarietal, how much depends on the processing, how much depends on all these other things. But so this specific chalk that you're eating right now comes, this bar that you're eating comes from two places in the world. One is Efrain Puma's chocolate uh, cacao farm in Coribeni, in Echerati, in Cusco, eyebrow of the jungle of Cusco his chuncho cacao, Efrain's farm. That's 75% of the content. Can you take a guess as to what the other 25% is? I don't know what it is. What is it? So this is a project that I'm really excited about. The other 25% is... Weed. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Um, The other 25% is maple sugar. Oh, man. That comes from Ethan's farm. I love it. That's so good. Really interesting. I was looking at the map the other day. Ethan's farm is in upstate, is in northern Vermont. Efrain's farm is in southern Peru. They're on the same exact line of longitude, which is crazy. And they're just two farms that are about 6,000 miles away from each other. Maybe more. I don't know the exact distance, but and they've come together in some chocolate bar. Yeah, so the future definitely holds a little bit more volume. So I want to work with more farmers, ideally cacao and coffee. And... Once I sort of establish roasters in the States, more roasters. Right now I'm working with, you know, 10 to 15 coffee roasters and basically Northeast. Also a, a buddy out of mine out West in California has some of the coffee, but establish a little bit more 
places where the coffee's available and maybe some other chocolate makers that are using the cacao because I want to have a little bit more impact in this area of Peru. I want to work with more cacao and coffee farmers. From there, I want to start to look at some of these other interesting foods that are coming out of Peru. These other terroir foods, but also other interesting superfoods, you yeah. know? Love it. So we're looking at interesting herbs and mints that come out of the mountains of Peru. Maybe some adaptogenic herbs that come from the jungle. Maybe some of the ginger and the turmeric that are growing right alongside the coffee and the cacao. So that's kind of the five-year plan. Right now, I've got to work with the coffee roasters, the coffee farmers, and continue to improve quality. The cacao farmers want to focus on the fermentation, the harvest, and make sure that we're getting as high a quality as possible. And then sort of down the line, it's like maybe some more finished products. there you have it thank you uh mateo campesino for sharing your knowledge and experiences with me and with everyone else you can find out more information about his company and what he's up to at campesinomateo.com that was super fun after this interview happened i went up to vermont and went to republic of vermont and met ethan so that was like a cool little thing how this whole you know journey is starting to link together where all these people are starting to come in and out and uh, starting to meet new people so anyway ethan thank you for showing me around your place and hopefully i'll be able to come back up soon if you listen to this spend a little more time up there um the maple syrup was flowing when i was there so he was really busy he's got a super sick setup really cool um so hopefully i'll be able to make it up soon and um maybe we can find some time to have an interview and so that's maybe something to look forward to um so anyway um see you next week thank you very much for listening uh you can check out nevintaylorcooks.com for more stuff more updates old episodes all the stuff 